In the last century, one of the principal figures in theology was a Swiss theologian whose name was Karl Barth. And we can't, we can't approve of everything that Karl Barth did or spoke of or wrote or ways that he lived. There's a lot of clouds upon so much. But just prior to his death, I think it was in 1968, is that right? I got it right. I got our death expert here that tells me Karl Barth, in fact, did die in 1968. That's exactly what I thought. Um, He had prepared a sermon that I don't think he ever lived actually to preach. And in that sermon, I I read a quote. He spoke of conversion in this way. He said, it's turning in one's tracks and then starting off towards the new thing, the goal that is ahead. A new year is a good time, even for seasoned saints, to assess the path we've already gone down in life and to determine whether there's not a need to turn in one's tracks, to start off towards a new thing a new goal. Because even the best of believers, even the most seasoned of saints, can lose their way. We can become influenced by the things of this world, even things that are purportedly Christian, and yet as we view it with a closer inspection, clearly fall short of the biblical picture. So easy to get off track. And I'd like to help us get back on track if, in fact, we've strayed. And I think in many ways, we all can say to one extent or another, we can all use a little bit of reorientation of our, of our, our walk and our way um, to get back on track if needed or to at least stay on track if we're on the right track for the most part. And so what I want to do is I want to direct your attention uh, this morning and at least for the next couple of weeks to what... I'm calling our singular focus for the new year. Our singular focus for the new year. Now this is a theme that was suggested to me as I was considering beginning the new year preaching a series of messages from Philippians 4 and verse 8. I mentioned that in Sunday school. as a passage that reads as follows. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Ultimately, I decided I couldn't address this passage at this time. Um, But the idea that's behind the passage is uh, too important not to, at least in some way, Uh, determine our direction because that which uh, this passage tells us is that what controls our minds will determine our lives the way we walk the way we live the choices we make really flow out of the things that capture our minds our thoughts what fills your mind will determine your ways I've lived my life with my mind filled with Yankee history. And that determines what I will watch when Major League Baseball will give me 15 games to look at. You know which one I'm going to. It's the one that fills my mind with pleasant thoughts. 
that captivates my attention, that accords with my loves, my desires, the things that I am um, uh, most interested in. Our thoughts govern our lives and become crucial to our well-being. And there are thoughts which this passage tells us will determine God's presence with us. The things you've seen and heard in me, these things do, and the God of peace will be with you, Paul says. So the the thoughts, the things we think about that will result in the God of peace being with us. But then if we think of the opposite thoughts, the contrary thoughts, instead of thinking upon the true things to think upon the false instead of thinking upon the honorable to be filling our minds with the dishonorable instead of thinking about the things that are just to be all the time thinking about what's unjust and and, and, and injustice to others and how we can propagate injustice in the world then instead of the pure we're thinking of the impure and instead of the lovely we're thinking upon the ugly Instead of the commendable, that which is disgraceful. I think those are thoughts that will drive the the God of peace from us. Will drive the sense of God's nearness and presence away from us. Surely is a bad diet. It's going to lead to bad health. Bad thoughts will lead to moral, mental, and spiritual disease. As good food is necessary for bodily health, so good thoughts are necessary for mental and spiritual health. So how do we make our thoughts good? I think in a real sense, making our desires good. We tend to follow our desires. We tend to follow the things we prize most dearly. The things we long for, the things we love, the things we make our goals, our ends, our ambitions will will guide us, will govern us, will control our thought life. When you want something passionately, you pursue it with energy and with diligence and with singular focus and singular intent. I want to start the year by placing before us A singular focus and intent that is a godly focus, a godly intent. And I'd like to do it by placing before us three examples of singular desire and intent. These three passages are found in three different places in the Bible. They concern three different people. But each speak about one thing. One thing guiding, governing, life, thought, and action. One thing that's necessary, one thing that's desirable, one thing that should be pursued with singular focus. The passages are Psalm 27 and verse 4. I read the whole of the psalm in your presence, but in your hearing, but verse 4 says, One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The second passage is Luke 10 and verse 42. 
Jesus says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. And then the final verses, Philippians 3, 13 and 14, where Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Three people, three passages, three perspectives on the singular focus and goal of the life of faith. David focusing on the pursuit of God's presence. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will also seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple here's a man who's bent upon the presence of God the pursuit of God's presence Mary in Luke chapter 10 whose focus Jesus tells us is the one necessary thing sitting at his feet, receiving his teaching, the pursuit of the teaching of God. Not only God's presence, but also God's teaching, divine instruction. And then finally, Paul, speaking about the one thing he does, pursuing the prize, the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Paul's focus on the pursuit of God's calling. So those are the three things I want to present to you in these sermons in the first weeks of 2023. David, intent upon the focus of the pursuit of God's presence. Mary, focused upon the pursuit of God's teaching. Paul, focused on the pursuit of God's calling. This morning we take up the first of these, Psalm 27 and verse 4. Please turn to the 27th Psalm. Verse 4 says again, I'll repeat it, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This is a passage in which David, the psalm writer, expresses his obsession with the house of God. His obsession with the temple of God. Why? Why would the king of Israel be obsessed with the house of God, the temple of God? Simply because it's in the house of God and the temple of God is the place of God's dwelling. His desire is to dwell where God dwells. To be where God is. See, the temple, or before that, actually in the time of David, would have been the tabernacle, was the tent or the house of the presence of God. It's a place where he dwelt in Israel. That's a place of his special personal presence. The God of Sinai, 
who appeared in the cloud of glory upon that mountain in the midst of thunders and lightnings and storms and spoke the words of the Ten Commandments from that mountain is the God who's ascended from that mountain after the tabernacle was built and the glory cloud that appeared on Sinai where Moses met with God is now a glory cloud that descends upon the tabernacle and fills the place so that Moses couldn't get near it. God's presence was in the midst of his people. His special presence manifest and made known in the midst of the camp of Israel. It was a tent of presence. But it's also interesting that another title is given to the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's not only a tent of presence, it's also a tent of meeting. It's a tent of meeting. It's the place where the people of Israel met with their God and God met with them. It's the place where they drew near to God with their offerings. The place where the nation and the person of the high priest, remember the high priest had the ephod in which there was the stones that had the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, six on each shoulder. And then there was the breastplate with the names of the twelve tribes also in, 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 in stones, engraved in stones. And we're told that that breastplate represented the fact that the high priest in the ministry that he exercised on behalf of the people, on behalf of those twelve tribes, not only had the tribes on his shoulders and on his breast, but he had those tribes in his heart. The priest exercises ministry on behalf of the people, in love to the people, in goodwill to the people, desiring of bringing the people near to God. So they ministered on behalf of the people who because of their ministrations came to dwell in the light of God's presence. It's one of the beautiful pictures you see within the place where the priests ministered on a daily basis. Is every Sabbath day they came and they changed the loaves on the table of the showbread. You remember how many loaves there were on the table of the showbread? There were 12 loaves. Why 12? Well, the 12 loaves were meant to represent the 12 tribes. And it was the table of God's presence. The 12 tribes were represented on the table of God's presence. Those tribes were designed to dwell in God's presence because of the work of the priests on their behalf. And in that table of the 12 Loaves that represented the nation in the presence of God. You had the candlestick or the menorah lamp. You know, you go down to the Galleria Mall and you see the menorah lamp or the menorah light that uh, is meant to represent Hanukkah. And the and the problem with that is, don't think that that is what the menorah lamp in the tabernacle looked like. It doesn't look like that at all. It's not something with a bunch of branches uh, very neatly spaced. It was the picture of twisted, turning uh, lamps in, in the picture of what would be branches like a tree. Coming out of the stem of all different directions. 
and then having lamps that had calyxes and it had uh, the picture again of something that emulated a tree it was meant to represent the tree of light of life but it was a lamp and the and the way in which the lights were made to focus was upon the table of the showbread it was presented in that direction upon the table of the showbread meant to picture the fact that the 12 tribes of Israel dwelt in the presence of the God of light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And that light of the Lord brought the life of the Lord to his people. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. We sing at Christmas time. But that was represented in the tabernacle. The life and light of God towards his people. David's singular focus was to dwell in that house. There to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now we're not told a whole lot in scripture about the beauty of the Lord. We're told that the garments of the priests were made for beauty and for glory. There's something about even the garments of the priests that there was a beauty to it. There was something that was attractive to the eye. Now again, that's a physical beauty that was seen in the way in which the, the garments were made. And certainly there was no physical beauty that was seen in the God of Israel. But there was a moral beauty. There was a spiritual beauty. There was a beauty that emanated from the reality that this God is a God of goodness, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of kindness, a God of forgiveness, a God who drew near to his people with loving kindness and steadfast love. David desired to be in the presence of that God. To behold the beauty of that God. And then he also adds to inquire. In his temple. To draw near to him. To inquire of him. To pray to him. To seek him for his counsel. To seek him for his instruction. To seek him for his guidance. For his truth. David was obsessed with the house of God. Principally because he was obsessed with the God of the house. He says this God. The God of the house. Was his light. His salvation. The strength of his life. What a great confession that is. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Now it's interesting where David was when he made this confession. He wasn't sitting in church in the midst of relative safety, in the midst of no danger or peril at hand. No. David in the psalm is surrounded by danger. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me, my adversaries and my foes. He speaks in verse 3 of an army encamped against him, war rising against him. David's situation is not an easy one. It's in the face of danger. It's in the face of darkness. It's in the face of weakness. It's in the face of fear. And yet in the midst of all of that, 
danger, darkness, weakness, and fear, he knows that Israel's God is with him, dwells in the midst of his people, and has a history of leading his people by the light of his presence and his saving countenance, rescuing his people by his strong arm of power and equipping his people to meet the challenges that they face. Because this God is his God, he declares that Yahweh is his light in the face of darkness. His rescue in the face of danger. His strength in the face of weakness. And anyone who knows that that God is your God will want to draw near to Him, the source of light, the source of salvation, the source of strength, to dwell in the place where He dwells, where we can behold His beauty, see His goodness. See his mercy, his kindness, his love, and where we can learn of his will and where we can learn of his ways. It's interesting that David sees this dwelling in the presence of God, that singular focus upon that as his goal. That's what he's after. That's what he wants to realize. He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple. That singular focus brings him to his knees in prayer. That singular focus upon dwelling in the presence of God brings him to seek that from the Lord in prayer. One thing have I asked of the Lord. See, to dwell in God's presence is not something easily attainable by human nature. It's not something we wake up in the morning and that's our first thought. Let's dwell in the presence of the house of the Lord. I used to be amazed at the fact you could go to a church meeting at night, sing hymns that moved your heart, hear messages that thrilled your soul. You'd be on a spiritual mountaintop when you pillowed your head at night. And you'd wake up in the morning and God was not at all anywhere near your thoughts. Now, if you have a different experience, if you can wake up every morning and the first thing in your mind is, wow, what a great God I have and serve. I want to know what you're eating. I want to know what you're drinking. Because I'd like to be able to do that. But I know I've got to peel myself off of the bed, get the stuff, the gunk out of my eyes and begin to try to focus my, my vision, at least to the place where I could even open up the Bible and look and see what's there. I so easily forget what's there. I so easily need to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. This even a night's sleep could take me miles away from where I was the night before. It's something we need to seek the Lord for. Lord, draw near. Lord, renew your kindnesses to me. We don't just take it for granted. That's why we pray in the ministry, in the opening of worship. Lord, draw near. Lord, grant us your spirit. Lord, we need you. We can't do this on our own. Left to ourselves, we're going to be spinning our wheels. Left to ourselves, we're going to be looking at one another, just you know, wondering what, what do we do next? What do we say next? There's a real sense in which God's presence is absolutely needed. 
To dwell in God's presence is something not easily attainable. To a race that's been smitten by the disease of sin. We have by nature little desire for it and little ability to achieve it. God must impart the longing. The longing for his fellowship. The longing for his presence. He must give light to our souls that so easily become darkened. He must rescue us from ourselves. Rescue us from the thoughts that wander. Rescue us from the propensity we have just to let the things of this world just enter in and eclipse anything of a sense of his nearness and his goodness and his glory. One thing I have asked of the Lord, it has to begin there. It has to begin in prayer. Lord, give strength to my weak heart and will. Give light to my dark soul. Give rescue to my wandering heart and mind. One thing I have asked of the Lord. He doesn't simply rest in prayer. Say, well, I prayed for it. I believe it. Done deal. Everything's going to be fine from that point forward. No. David understood that prayer is absolutely necessary. But prayer has to be joined with active pursuit. Willing pursuit. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. He pursues what he requests. Surely God must shelter him and conceal him under the cover of his tent. But he must come and offer in his tent the sacrifices with shouts of joy. He must sing and he must make melody to the Lord. He must seek his face. Again, God initiates it. God says, seek seek my face. But he has to respond, your face, O Lord, will I seek. He has to seek God's face, even as he prays that God would not hide his face from him. You see, God doesn't bless the indifferent, the half-hearted, the lazy, the unwilling. He blesses those who seek him with all their hearts. We need to pray for the presence of God. We need to pursue the presence of God. We need to learn to delight in the presence of God. We need to learn to be satisfied with nothing less than the presence of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon the earth I desire besides you. God is the strength of my heart and my glory forevermore. I will draw near to the Lord. Where do we go? To seek the presence of God. I mean, David had his tabernacle. David had his priest. David had the sacrifices. David had the glory of the Shekinah in the temple. What do we have? What do we have? We don't have temple. We don't have tabernacle. We don't have priests. We don't have visible glory. But we do have Jesus. We do have Jesus. Who is Jesus? The one in whom the fullness of the Godhead 
dwelt bodily. What's a temple? It's the place where God is present. Where is God present? He's present in Christ. The fullness of the God had dwelt in Him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's allusion to the temple in the wilderness. Jesus is the temple in the wilderness. God pitched His tent among us. Just as He pitched His tent among the Israelites, He's pitched His tent among us. He's present, not in a visible tent, but in a person. In the Savior of the world. In the person who is Israel's God enfleshed. We behold His glory. The glory of God's in Christ. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. We see God in Christ. It's an amazing reality that our eyes have beheld Him by the illumination of the Spirit of God. The God who caused light to dwell in the midst of darkness, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, has shined into our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we go to see the glory of God? Where do we go to find the presence of God? We go to Jesus who declared of himself, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, but through me. He's the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple of his body, crucified for our sins, raised by the power of God, glorified at the Father's right hand, is our way of approach to God. This new and living way that the book of Hebrews speaks about. Having this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us draw near with confidence to a throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help us in time of need. It's through Jesus we behold the beauty of the Lord. It's in Jesus we inquire in His temple the way that is pleasing to God, the way that we should be instructed and the way that we should go. It's Jesus who is our teacher as well as our priest and our king. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing we have. We have Jesus. Then secondly, you know what else we have? We want the presence of God. That's the goal. That's the ambition. That's the pursuit. That's the singular pursuit. The presence of God. Well, we find Him in Jesus, but we also have His Word. We have the Word of Christ that's said to dwell in us richly. Christ dwells in our hearts, yes, by faith. The Spirit of God comes and dwells in our hearts. But it's also the Word of Christ that's said to dwell in our hearts. God comes to us in His Word. It's His Word that mediates God. Again, why is it that you wake up on a morning after you've had a tremendous spiritual experience and you feel you're just down in the dumps, but you break open your Bible and all of a sudden there's some light that 
that surprises the Christian, sometimes while he sings, but often while he reads, often while he reads, often while he reads the word of God, that God draws near. It's God's words. God has spoken. And what God has spoken ought to be heard. God's taken the time to give us a written revelation of himself. We need to be taking the time to hear it. We need to be taking the time to be reading his word. That's the way of blessedness, we're told in Psalm 1. Meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. Again, I was going to preach from the passage in Philippians 4, 8. Decided not to do it. But it says, think upon these things. Think upon these things. What things? Well, the things that are just. The things that are noble and good. And the things that are of good report and commendable. And all those lovely and all those other qualities. Well, where do you learn about those things? You learn about those things from the instruction of God's word. God's law. God's teaching. I mean, think of the Torah, the law of God. This is the instruction of God. God has taken the time to instruct his people in his word. And we need to be taking the time to hear his word and to have his word have his way with us. It's interesting how in the book of Colossians it says, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. And it speaks about then we singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord. In the Ephesian letter, in a very parallel passage, it speaks about be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians, it's the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Ephesians, it's the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us richly. It's the Word of God and the Spirit of God go hand in glove. They're not distant. They work together. And as the Word of Christ comes to dwell in us, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so it's not only that Jesus is the place where the presence of God is met. And the word of God is the place where the presence of God is revealed. But in us, the presence of God is revealed. We become temples of the Holy Spirit. We become temples of the living God. And that leads me to the third thing. We have Jesus in whom the temple of God is revealed, the word of God, in which the temple of God is revealed in every individual Christian who receives God's word and receives God's spirit. But then we have the people of God. That's all of us together. And this interesting description that was found in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Jesus is presented as the stone that the builders rejected that's become the head of the corner. He's the living stone. And that we also become stones. We're built upon him. We're built upon Christ, the stone. And we are living stones. And we're built together to provide what? To form a spiritual house, a holy temple, to offer spiritual sacrifices while pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. The church becomes the temple of God as well. God's people individually are temples of the living God, the spirit dwelling in us. But then the church in its gatherings are the temple of God where God dwells. Jesus says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Paul says of the church, it's the family of God, it's the habitation of God through the Spirit. God comes to dwell among us. What does that mean? It means we need one another. We need one another. If we would know the presence of God, 
I don't think you're going to do it alone, just with your Bible. I have Jesus. That's all I need. God so put it together that we need one another. We need one another. We need the, the mediating presence of God that's found in every single spirit-filled Christian. And the gifts and the graces and the example and the model that God's people serve for the good of one another. As we learn to pray as we hear Christians pray. I don't learn to pray because I just went off with my Bible and said, Lord, teach me to pray. Yeah, well, that, that would have been okay. But one of the blessings in my own prayer life is that I have the voices of so many godly Christians crying out to God in their prayers. Amen. And I learn not just the language of prayer through the prayers of God's people. I learn what it meant to plead with God. And we're imitative creatures. We need examples. We need living examples. That's why God has come in Christ. The incarnation of the Son of God, giving us the chief example of perf- perfect humanity. Yet Jesus dwells in every member of his body through his spirit. And every member of his body has something to teach us, something to show us, something to encourage us in, that we can't be without one another. We're not meant to go it alone with our Bibles and even our theology books as we sit in our high tower learning about the things of the Christian faith. We learn the Christian faith from Christians in whom God dwells by the Spirit. Even David understood that. Psalm 27 is followed by a bunch of psalms. One of the principal ones I think of along these lines is Psalm 42. Uh, David mentions how he went with the throng. He went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. We need the multitude of the people of God to teach us. We need the saints who image God in Christ. We see Jesus in his people. And we come to know him from those who know him. And those who walk with him. And those who show forth his praises in the lives that they live before God. So do you have an ambition in this coming year? If you've been a bit off track in terms of your own singular pursuit of the presence of God. you have any ambition to get back where you should be? To get where David was? To have in your own walk before God that singular commitment to be able to say one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will also seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauties of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If that's your ambition, if that's your goal, immerse yourself in Jesus. Immerse yourself in the biblical 
picture that we're given of Jesus in the Gospels, the instruction we have in the epistles about Jesus, make this a Christ-centered year. Make it a year that's filled with God's Word. I'm not interested to know you're intending to read through the Bible cover to cover in the coming year. If you're able to do that, fine and good. That's fine. But just have interaction with God's words. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you read through wide swaths of Scripture. But I think it's helpful that you do. Maybe it's little snippets that you just immerse your mind and heart in so that you have interaction and involvement with God's word in this coming year. You're not going to know his presence without his words. And you're not going to know his presence without his people. It's in the midst of the people of God. Jesus says, I will be in their midst. It's in the midst of the people of God we learn so much about God's will and God's ways as we see Christ reflected in his people who possess his spirit and to learn of him that others might learn of him through them. And then even further, for a people that live in the presence of God who are Christ-centered, who have the word of God Deeply, deeply dwelling within our hearts and God's people teaching us, we ought also ourselves be teachers of others. We'll be in the position to be able to encourage others, to be able to mediate the presence of God to others. Something about the enthusiasm of people that are desirous of God's presence and desirous of God's fellowship and desirous of God's will and desirous of God's ways, that that enthusiasm is catching. It's catching. Others pick up on it and others are impacted and others are influenced. And, you know, you have a whole movement of people today on the internet that they're called influencers. Well, I don't want any of you to be doing any of that. But yet in our own little sphere of influence, let's be an influence. Let's be influencers. Jesus put it this way. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. May God help us to be light and salt to others, that the blessing of his presence would not only be something we enjoy, but that through us will come to others. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this psalm. We're thankful for David's obsession with your glory and your goodness and your love and your light and your salvation, and your strength. We pray that we too would be a people of this good obsession, that we would desire you, and we would desire your fellowship, and we would desire your presence, and we would desire to dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold your beauty, to inquire of you in, in, your, in your temple. That, Lord, we would be a people centered in Jesus, centered in the Word, centered in the people of the living God. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people through your Word as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.